I always enjoy when listening to that song, thinking of the parable of the prodigal son, how he was in his sin, in his filth, far away, and, uh, and yet the doorway to his father's house was open. And then the glory of the gospel is it's not just that Jesus is calling, come home, but he runs to us in our filth and draws us out of our sinful mire cleans us up, clothes us with His righteousness. We don't have to fix our life first. He takes care of that. You just bow the knee to His saving sovereignty and He will make you whole. Praise the Lord for Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, please turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 17-18 through 18 this morning which marks an important development in our current focus in this book on the topic of evangelism, on reaching those who do not know Jesus Christ with the saving gospel. And if you recall, Peter is writing this book to a group of elect exiles, to a group of Christians who had been chosen by God for salvation and yet were experiencing rejection by the world. In fact, probably when this letter was written, it was written literally to people who were pilgrims and exiles, who were traveling from town to town, escaping persecution and hardship under the Roman Empire. And, uh, and so he was writing to these group of elect exiles. And 2,000 years later, things haven't changed. We might think they have because we live in America, but if you look around the world, this is the experience of Christians is that we are, by the decree of God, made to be elect exiles. And this is the way that we will be until Christ establishes His kingdom here on earth. Until then, we occupy the position of elect exiles. By God's gracious and sovereign will, we have been chosen by God by God to be recipients of His salvation. We are adoptees into His family, and we are inheritors of of His eternal life and glory. We have been made citizens of God's kingdom. And yet, we are here on earth. And being chosen and set apart by God in this way has changed unalterably our relationship to this current world and world system. Having become a citizen of God's eternal kingdom, we are no longer citizens of Satan's earthly one. And therefore, we as redeemed followers of Jesus are often looked upon as objects of oddity, curiosity, disdain, and even hostility by those who still belong to this world's fallen system. We are now strangers and exiles. And our experience here on earth will be living in a foreign land and among a foreign culture to which we do not belong. So the question that Peter addresses in this letter is, how do we now live as elect exiles? How do we glorify God in the midst of an increasing hostile culture? The response is not to form a cloister and have nothing to do with the world. No, he says you're a pilgrim band and you're traveling through this world and you're supposed to have an evangelistic impact. You're supposed to be pointing others to your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so we've been studying Christianity 101, essential Christianity What does it really look like? Peter's been showing us it all comes down to living out. Essential Christianity all comes down to living out by God's grace given to us in Christ our new birth through supernaturally new and transformed relationships. This is how we show the world what He has done. 
And Peter's been systematically going through those new relationships one by one. Back in chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, we saw that we respond to God as elect exiles now in a new and transformed way by living lives of reverence, righteousness, and readiness. In other words, by reverently living a righteous life in light of Christ's coming return, we glorify God in our relationship with Him. Well, second, in chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, we saw that we respond as elect exiles to other believers in a transformed uh, and new way, and that is by living lives of settled, committed, sanctifying devotion. By devoting ourselves in love to the spiritual growth and holiness of other believers around us in the church, we glorify God in our relationship with fellow believers. After that, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we saw that we demonstrate our new birth in our relationship with ourselves through repentant dependence upon God's word for both individual and corporate growth. By growing in Christ-likeness through repentance from sin and a delight in God's word, we glorify God in our relationship with ourselves. Well, most recently we've been examining how to glorify God as elect exiles in terms of our relationship with the unsaved world. And the way that we do that is by having redemptive relationships. Relationships that are focused on and put the highest priority on sharing the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't retreat from the gospel because we love those who are closest to us. We lean into the gospel because we love those who are closest to us. We don't make an idol of our relationship. We place Christ above our relationships and we speak the gospel to our children, to our grandchildren, to our parents, to our friends, to our neighbors and our co-workers. We prioritize this. If you're wanting to know why you're still here on earth and why you just happen to know the people that you yourself specifically know, it's because God is intending for you to share the gospel with them. That's why you know them and no one else in this room. You know them because God has put you in their life to share the gospel with them. And therefore, everything we do with our unsaved family members and friends and neighbors and co-workers and classmates ought to have this as its ultimate goal, the salvation of their souls through the hearing of the gospel. It's the thing that we are constantly praying for, yearning for, striving for. That applies to all of our conversations and all of our conduct. And that's where Peter begins. We want to live lives that underline the saving gospel, not undermine it. And the first step towards doing that, of adorning the gospel of our Savior through our everyday relationships, is by showing stunning submissiveness. And we looked at that quite at length over the last several weeks in verses 13 through 16. In the midst of a world that, as Psalms 2 describes, rages, plots, aligns, and takes counsel together, all for one goal, to burst apart and to cast away all the bonds of God-given authority from them. In the midst of a world like that, we as pilgrims can shine as lights in the world by showing stunning submissiveness to the various authorities that God has put over us. That's the first way to underline the saving gospel and not undermine it. Show stunning submissiveness. But that's not the only way. Peter's going to lay out three more foundations to effective everyday evangelism in this letter. And believe it or not, he actually introduced it for us last week in verse 17. Those three opening phrases of verse 17 says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, and fear God, actually serve as the perfect outline for what Peter's going to say next regarding the foundations for effective everyday evangelism. Honor everyone is illustrated 
uh, at the end of verse 17 into chapter 3, verse 7. Love the brotherhood is detailed in chapter 3, verse 8 into verse 12. And then fear God is unpacked and applied in chapter 3, verse 13 on to the end of the chapter at least. So all of these are in direct connection to evangelism. All these commands, be subject, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and Peter's going to unpack that for us in the days and weeks to come. And so these are the four virtues that are necessary to underlining and adorning the saving gospel in our everyday relationships with the unsaved. Be subject, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, and fear God. These virtues are vital to presenting a persuasive gospel witness to the world. And I just have to point out before we begin how interesting it is that all four of these virtues check the boxes for everything that's needed for an effective, persuasive appeal and message, even from a secular perspective, an extra-biblical perspective. See, while I was in college, I had a minor in rhetoric and public address. I figured if I was going to be a pastor, then this country boy better learn how to speak as effectively as possible since I was going to end up having to do it quite a bit. So the next time you hear me stumble over my words while I'm preaching, just remember, this is after four years of an entire college department's concerted effort to improve my public speaking. Imagine how bad I was before. (laughs) All in all, I'd say they'd done good. That's a joke. Anyway, one of the things that they'd hammer over and over and over again in our public speech classes are the three tools of rhetorical persuasion. In other words, three ingredients that, when they're present, create the most persuasive appeal and message possible. And these have been studied by, like, the last 2,000 years, okay? So these three ingredients are logos, pathos, and ethos. And don't get hung up on those strange words. Uh, What it means is that if you want to present the most persuasive message possible, then you have to have an uncompromised message, an uncompromised emotion, and an uncompromised lifestyle or character. Those are the three ingredients of a persuasive appeal. An uncompromised message, an uncompromised emotion, and an uncompromised lifestyle. And what I think is interesting and fascinating is at the heart of this letter and at the center of this discussion of what creates effective everyday evangelism, Peter hits on each one of these persuasive ingredients one at a time. So think about it. Why are we told, do you think, to be subject and to submit to authority as pilgrims and exiles here in this world? It's because God wants an uncompromised message. An uncompromised message. If the church gets predominantly focused on good yet lesser things like shaping society and forgets its primary mission from God to save souls regardless of what society you happen to be living in at the moment, then the church's testimony to the saving, eternal gospel will get crowded out by every new injustice that will always crop up in a fallen world. And can I say, I think we see that in the American church today. The church is proclaiming so many messages right now and feels the need to speak out on so many different issues. Not all of them bad. Of course, they pick and choose which ones they want to speak out on. But where is the consistent, uncompromised, essential witness to the gospel from churches. Is this the message the world is hearing from us? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Where is the holy glories of the triune God being proclaimed? Have the infinite wonders of the eternal God become boring to the American church today? 
Where's the reality of sin and death and judgment being put forward? You think there's a crisis in our land? It is. It's called sin. It's called hell. It's called judgment. It's not society. It's your soul. Has hell and the eternal state of souls become a mere fairy tale to believers? To me and to you. Where is the mystery of Christ's person and work being studied and examined and picked apart and adored from all angles? Has this so great a salvation become diminished to just one of many interests that the church can pursue here on earth? Where is the maturing and the equipping of believers to call on others to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what culture you're living in? Or has the pursuit of the Great Commission been replaced by the pursuit of a social contract? Believers, we have to keep the main thing the main thing. God has called us together. The church is an assembly of called ones for a purpose. He set the agenda of the meeting. We don't get to make it up. We have to have the right logos. We have to have an uncompromised message that we're presenting to the world. The broader church has been failing at this. If you want to know why, just take a look. The world sees the evangelical church today primarily as a voting block. Now that might be because, might be because they make politics and power an idol. It's possible. And so they see it in everyone else. But it might also be because we've started to value those very same things a bit too highly also as those who are living in this world. God, make us different. For the sake of our evangelism, we must stay preeminently focused on maintaining an uncompromised, undistracted, laser-focused witness to the gospel as a corporate church beginning by properly submitting to authority. It's part of our persuasive appeal to the gospel. It's an uncompromised message. Second, an uncompromised emotion. Hence the call here in verse 17 to do what? Honor everyone. What undermines a message quicker than a bad attitude? <laughs> right? If you're characterized by disgust and derision and disrespect for those who disagree with you, if you're marked by name-calling and personal attacks and labeling others, then no one's going to listen to you. You will not have an effective persuasive testimony of the gospel. All that the unsaved will see is your emotion that is compromising your message. For effective everyday evangelism, we have to have the right pathos. We have to have an uncompromised emotion towards the lost, an emotion of redemptive respect towards them. It's part of our persuasive evangelistic appeal as believers, an uncompromised message, an uncompromised emotion, and then lastly, just an uncompromised lifestyle. That's why he says, love the brotherhood and fear God. For an effective everyday evangelism, we must live a life that backs up our message. Saying, you've got to submit to Jesus Christ for salvation. Well, then we need to be demonstrating fear of the Lord, right? Jesus loves you. He died on the cross to save you from your sins, but I hate you, right? No, we need to be demonstrating love towards our relationship with those who are closest to you. We must have the right ethos, an uncompromised lifestyle of genuine love and reverence. I probably spent too long on that, but I just wanted to show you that these commands that we're studying, that we're taking time on, are not disconnected from our evangelistic appeal. They're integral and center, central and support our gospel witness. 
Everything that we're looking at right now really is directly tied to our mission of evangelism. God is calling us as elect exiles to submit to authority, to honor everyone, to love the brotherhood, and to fear God because this is how we display an uncompromised gospel message, emotion, and lifestyle to the lost. This is how we present an effective everyday appeal to the saving gospel. We underline the gospel by submitting to authority, and as we'll start seeing today, by honoring everyone. And and Peter expands on that command to honor everyone. In in chapter 2, verse 17, on into chapter 3, verse 7, by focusing on three individuals that might be the hardest to consistently show honor and respect towards. And that's because we are either with them or are impacted by them the most on a daily basis. And those three people are... And I had to alliterate, so this is, you know, forced alliteration. Um, our sovereigns, or, or in Peter's case, the emperor, right? Those in government over us. Our supervisors, or in Peter's case, one's master. And our spouses, and our spouses. This is how we demonstrate, or begin to demonstrate, honoring everyone. We start by those who impact us the most, and who we spend the most time with. Peter doesn't pull any punches. In illustrating the need to honor everyone, Peter gets close and personal and he teaches that demonstrating honor to everyone starts really close to home. With the person that you roll over and look at the pillow on and, boy, that's what Zach looks like today, right? Um, To our spouses, to our supervisors, Monday morning, and to those operating as sovereign in government. Even when you shake your head at what are they doing? And so this morning, we'll look at the first two illustrations of honoring everyone, which is honoring your sovereigns, which we'll briefly touch on. I already talked about a little bit last week at the end of verse 17. And then honoring your supervisors, which we'll look much more closely at uh, in verse 18. So these are the two ways that we are encouraged to begin honoring everyone in our everyday lives in order to underline the gospel and not undermine it. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. Just these two verses that we'll focus on. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words to us today. Verse 17. And context, of course. Uh, verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. What does that look like? Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. And that's as far as we'll get today, but I'll finish with verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. God who fills us with disgust when His commands are abandoned in faithlessness. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. I pray, Father, that You would speak through this fallen presentation. I pray that your strength would be manifested in weakness, that the treasure would be shown through a jar of clay, and that the glory of Jesus Christ would be understood 
adored and submitted to. Make us a people, Father, who walk as servants of You, who do good for the Lord's sake and the salvation of the lost. Give us grace towards this end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So after Peter outlines for us the remaining foundations for effective everyday evangelism there at the beginning of verse 17, he then goes back to that first foundation, or that second, excuse me, that second foundation of honoring everybody, there at the end of verse 17 by calling on us to honor the emperor. Honor our sovereigns. He says, honor the emperor there at the end of verse 17. In other words, honor those in government, even those who, as verse 13 says, operate as supreme, even guys as corrupt and wicked and sinfully depraved as we looked at several weeks ago, a guy named Nero. Honor and respect through your conduct and your conversation, even men like that. Okay? So that immediately makes me like, whoo, what's the Greek word? Maybe there's a wiggle way room out. Not really, right? So, now that word honor is tamao in the Greek. And it means to treat with and to ascribe to something both value and respect. And this is very helpful because it means that the honor that we are to show to those in government has nothing to do with who they are, and it has everything to do with who we are. Namely, servants of God committed to doing good for the sake of the Lord and the salvation of the lost. Right. So the respect that we are to put upon those in government does not arise from them, their own leadership or their own virtue. It is something that we put on them. So this is very similar to what you'll find in Scripture regarding how Christians are supposed to love. Right? Agape love is a love of what? The emotions? Nope. Is it a love that arises from the virtue of the person you're placing the love on? Nope. The agape love is a love of the will. You put it on someone, whether they deserve it or not. Guess what? The way that we love others as Christians is the way that we are to respect others as Christians as well. We are to place reverence, honor, and respect on people even if they don't deserve it. Even if they are not, they are not calling for respect by how they're acting. We are to still give it. We are to reflect their value as someone who has been made in the image of God. And again, we talked about last week, respect does not mean agreement, right? Respect means you're treating them and ascribing to them value in how you're talking to them and how you're treating them. We are to reflect their value as someone who is made in the image of God. And one of the ways that we can demonstrate the shocking principle of honoring everyone is by honoring and treating with respect even those in government over us. And we live in a culture where honor like that is just not given. We live in an American church where honor like that is just not given. Christians often say very, very, very disrespectful things about those in government. I had a list of several examples I was going to give this morning. And then I thought to myself, you know what? I don't even want to pass them on. Statements Christians have said about current and past presidents and current and past speakers of the House and representatives 
and you can probably fill in the blank in your own mind now. I don't want to pass that on, though. The point is we need to honor everyone. Honor them. Treat them as valuable. Treat them as respectful by how we talk about them and how we treat them. We need to carefully treat with constant respect even those who disrespect and disagree with us. So, for example, no name-calling. No derogatory jokes. No unproven slander. This is how you respect people. If you wouldn't do it, by the way, this word honor is going to show up later when it comes to spouses. If you wouldn't do it to your spouse, don't do it towards someone in government. Conversely, you can flip that around, right? If you wouldn't do that to the President of the United States, don't do that to your wife or your husband, right? Honor everyone. Let those who are dead in the darkness of sin do all those things. We need to act like children of light and catch the world's attention by honoring our sovereigns by those in governmental authority over us. Anyway, that's not the main point of this message today. But who are you not treating with respect in government today? Next, we're called here to honor our supervisors. That's in verse 18. Peter says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. The first reality that confronts us from this verse is that is it, addressed, it is addressed to a group of believers that find themselves in a context and a culture very different than our own. A context of servitude. Peter begins by saying this, Servants. Netoiketos in the Greek, and it's a title that describes someone who is a household or a domestic servant. And I should probably mention right here at the beginning that the servitude mentioned here in 1 Peter often looked very different than the slavery that existed in early America. I touched on this when we were going through Colossians. If you want a fuller development of that, you can look up the sermon uh, when we were going through servants and masters in Colossians. But, but at the same time, I understand the culture I'm speaking to, so I'm still going to clarify some things for you all. In fact, the type of slavery... Um, The type of slavery that we think of in terms of early America was blatantly condemned by God's word. We addressed this when we were going through that book. Again, as a reminder, Exodus 21, verse 16. God plainly condemns forced slavery when he says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone who is found in possession of himself, he put to death. Right In that one verse, if he did, that would have ended the entire European, American, and West African slave trade. And again, 1 Peter 1.10 lists enslavers as among the worst type of unredeemed sinners imaginable. And then, at the book, and then the book of Exodus says that even if someone already had a slave from their former life or had come to possess a slave through a person's claim to bankruptcy, that slave was to be set free after seven years whether they paid back their debt or not. That's Exodus 21, verse 2. And obviously, beyond even that, the basic principles of how do you treat your neighbor kind of outlaws slavery if you follow them, right? Um, at creation, we're told that all men are created equal and are equally clear, created in the image of God. At the cross, 
We're told that Jesus overcomes all racial, economic, and religious divisions that man creates. In fact, Paul tells Onesimus in Philemon 17 that he should welcome back his slave Philemon with the same type of love and respect that he would give towards Paul himself. In other words, treat him as an equal, treat him that way. And so I always want to be clear, despite what some people have tried to claim, the Bible never affirmed the peculiar institution of American slavery. In fact, the teachings of Scripture undermine it. That's why individual Christians were those who led the abolitionist movement early in our country because they actually read the Bible that they claim to believe. Well, anyway, here we see that the Rome had its own distinct form of slavery as well. And though it was probably a part of Roman society since the ancient times, slavery really took off uh, when Rome conquered the world. As the armies of the Roman Empire subjugated the entire known world, the R- Rome would take the best and the brightest from all the lands that they conquered, and they would put them to work as citizens of the empire. And as such, slaves and servants back then were often very highly educated, since they were taken to be slaves, and occupied positions of important responsibility. For example, slaves would be doctors, teachers, musicians, artists, actors, and financial advisors and stewards as well as slaves and domestic servants, and would live in the house with their masters and were considered an important part of the family. And although slaves possessed no legal rights or authority, they were actually paid wages for their work, which they could then buy food and clothing from, as well as to save up enough to buy their freedom through an agreement called a manumission. At such time, they would become freedmen, and they would receive all the rights of full voting citizens. I say all of that so that you would know the difference between the servitude mentioned here. It was a Roman servitude and the slavery that existed in early America. That one in America was based on the idea of racial superiority, was grossly demeaning, and was permanent. Roman slavery had nothing to do with race or ability, often had you performing a respectable job, and was roughly equivalent to indentured servitude with a pathway to freedom. So I want you to know the difference. However, it was still slavery. I don't want to sugarcoat it. It was disrespecting fellow man. A slave still possessed no legal rights of personhood, and therefore, though it was looked upon by others, it was still possible for a slave in the Roman Empire to be subject to gross abuse and mistreatment, as Peter will soon draw attention to. So as best as I can summarize it, those are the, those are the differences, and that's Roman slavery. And I think Peter focuses on the topic of slavery here, right off the bat when he's talking about honoring everyone, for two main reasons. Proximity, I'll put it this way, pro- proximity and prominence. So first, prominence. By the time 1 Peter was written, there were, by most estimates, around 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. So this is a huge, huge population group. And so many of the Christians that Peter would have been writing to at this time would have likely been slaves. As such, Peter addresses them first because of prominence. Second, proximity. Peter has just said in verse 16 that those who are redeemed should live as people who are free, living as what? Servants of God, right? Having introduced that idea, Peter knew that a majority of his audience would immediately be wondering how their spiritual freedom, and indeed their spiritual servitude as believers, right, should influence and affect their earthly servitude. And in our context today, how our relationship with Jesus Christ should affect our work and our employment relationships. Well, God tells us in verse 18, he says, subjects be what? Subject to your masters. That's the same word used back in verse 13 where God tells us, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And the exact same principles apply, right? 
as long as they're not commanding what God forbids or forbidding what God commands, Christian employees are to be subject to, they are to put themselves under their employers in an orderly fashion. They are to submit. This is critical if we're to have an effective witness to the unsaved. We must be respectfully submissive to our supervisors. This this was a very important issue for Peter to address in the early church because one of the dangers that existed back then and still exists today is the mistaken assumption, listen to this, that spiritual equality automatically equals social equality and that spiritual oneness automatically eliminates social distinctions and roles. One of the verses used to justify this is Galatians 3.28, which reads, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So back then, someone might argue, see, well, it says right there, there's no slave or free, we're all one, so let's eliminate that social distinction between employers and employees. There shouldn't be any differences here at all. Today, the argument sounds like this, though. We're not dealing with that issue, we're dealing with this. See, there's no male or female. We're all one. So let's not have this talk about gender roles or distinctions. There aren't any differences. See, the assumption back then and still today is that spiritual oneness eliminates social distinctions and makes them non-realities. That's simply not true. And we see that here in Peter's writings. Though Peter's audience were, as believers, set free in Christ, they were still servants in society with distinct societal roles, citizens to their leaders, employees to their employers, wives to their husbands, husbands to their wives, elders to their congregation, congregation to their elders, as Peter's going to lay out. That's exactly what Peter's saying here. Even though there's no spiritual distinction between slave and free, there's still a very real social distinction. And God's message to those Christians back then was not to rebel against that. It was to not protest those distinctions. It was not to tear down society and rebuild it in the way that you want. No, God's message to those Christians was, be subject for the Lord's sake and the salvation of the lost. Be a servant of God. Serve God in the role that God has given you in society, even if that role is servitude. Here we learn a very important spiritual principle. Equality spiritually does not mean equality in roles. Just because... A redeemed slave and a redeemed master were both redeemed. It didn't mean they no longer occupied different or distinct roles in society. To put it in our modern context, if you're still struggling to think through this, just because your boss is a Christian and you are also a Christian does not mean both of you are boss. There's still a social distinction there. There's still an order that you're supposed to fit under. He is still your supervisor. You are still his employee, even though both of you are equal in Christ. Your spiritual position does not negate your social position and God's plan for you in that position. Equality spiritually does not mean equality in roles. We see this in Christ, by the way. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-7 through seven says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, yet he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, even though Jesus was equal with God, he submitted himself to the role of a servant because that's what God had called for him to do. 
That's exactly what Peter is telling these Christian servants to do here. Even though you have been made free in Christ, submit yourself to the role of a servant because that's what God has called you to do. For the glory of God and the salvation of the lost, your mission is to be laser-focused on the salvation of the lost, not the reformation of society. Be subject to your earthly masters. In fact, God has Paul right over in 1 Corinthians 7, 20-24. He says this, very helpful passage. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called to be a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. You see, you can't walk away from a passage like that. This is, by the way, a summary. I could go on this way more. (laughs) But you can't walk away from a passage like that without at least being struck by the fact that calling on Christians to change our society and to reform public institutions in the here and now isn't nearly as high a priority with God as it is sometimes with us. Our priorities can so quickly become as Christians, can't they? What are the structures that currently exist in my society? Right? Are they fair? Are they unfair? Are they right? Or they not? Or are they wrong? What are they doing over there? And what are they doing over there? But God's priority is, no, what are you doing right here and right now, regardless of what the fallen world around you is doing in your society? Before you get consumed with reforming your society, if you're about evangelism, have you first considered, are you reforming your own life? As pilgrims and exiles, are you demonstrating a transformed life of humble submission and honor in the midst of your society, whether that society be right or wrong, fair or unfair? You see, the kingdom of God advances regardless of what society you're living in. Because until Christ returns, God's primary plan for changing society is changing souls. And that's the business we primarily need to be about. And what's the most effective way to change souls be stunningly submissive and honor everyone and that's why peter says here servants be subject to your masters notice with all respect now i need to be clear that's phobos in the greek from which we get our word phobia it means fear and peter's saying here servants be subject to your masters employees be subject to your supervisors with all fear you say fear of who fear of my boss No, (laughs) that is not what he's saying. Don't ever be motivated, ever, out of fear of man. Peter's saying, show honor and respect and submission to your supervisor out of fear for God. That's what he's teaching. Peter's already said this back in chapter 1, verse 17, when he wrote, If you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. It's your relationship with God that causes you to act in God-honoring fear. It's out of a proper fear of God that we're to show respect, honor, and submission to our supervisors. We do it out of reverence for God because we recognize God has providentially given us that supervisor and he has providentially put us under them for a reason, even if it's just to underline the gospel that we share with them by how we live and by how we honor and submit to them. Honor everyone, even your supervisor. But don't worry, I'm going to apply this to our context soon. But you might be thinking here this morning, Hold on, Pastor. You don't understand my boss. 
You don't understand how difficult that can be. Respect that guy? Show honor to them? Order myself under their? What I consider unrealistic demands? You don't understand how difficult this could be. Well, first I want to say this. I might. I might, right? I've had a fair amount of workplace supervisors in my life before I became a pastor. I wasn't born a pastor. (laughs) Under one that comes to mind, I was underpaid well beneath the minimum wages while working in very, very harsh conditions. Under another, the work was so rough and my supervisor pushed me so hard that my fingers were shredded and would bleed as I went home after every night of work. Under another, the employee of the opposite gender was given preferential treatment over the other. So first, I want to say, I kind of do understand what it's like having a difficult supervisor. But second, it doesn't matter what your boss is like. In fact, the worse they are, the more reason we have to shine out this gospel-grounded submission and respect. As Peter says at the end of this verse, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. As long as they're not commanding what God forbids or forbidding what God commands, honor and submit to them as your supervisor, as long as they're your supervisor, no matter who they might be. Not only respect the good and gentle ones, the virtuous, kind, fair, and reasonable ones, you better show them honor and respect because sometimes they're pretty rare to find. Respect them. But God also says show honor and submission to the unjust ones. Scolios in the Greek. Twisted, corrupt, crooked, unreasonable, harsh. You're to show honor and respect towards them. As long as they're, and notice I'm saying this, as long as they're your supervisor, you're to show that to them. Now I need to be clear, and this is where I'm bringing it into our culture. In our culture, in society, we are not stuck in static servitude, are we? No, we are not. If you've got a cruel, corrupt, twisted, unreasonable boss, goodness sakes, find another job. That's what I did, right? But while I was in that job, and while that person was my supervisor, guess what I was obligated by God to show them? Submission and respect. God does not say, stay under an unjust supervisor and be disrespectful. So in our context, if you're under such harsh environment that you, well, You can, right? Even if God threw you into slavery, you can do this, right? But you have the freedom to go and get another job, right? Avail yourself of that. Even Paul said that, right? If you're a slave, if you get the opportunity, take it, right? Take it. Be free. You can turn in your resignation papers. You can find a better job. Praise God for that. But what God doesn't want you to do is to stay under that boss and complain and disrespect them. And try to undermine them. So praise God we can find a better job. Back then believers didn't have that option. That's why Peter's writing it this way. Until you were able to buy your freedom, you were stuck working where you did. And so Peter's instruction is shine out the gospel where you are. Shine out the very life of Christ. Provide a compelling testimony by your respectful submission to the role of servant as God has called you to. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, which we read this morning, underscores these very same truths when Paul writes, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, 
as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Why? Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and Lord uh, master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And so that's the master side of thing. First Peter doesn't touch on it. Um, but that's the master side of thing. Treat your workers fairly and kindly or else God is going to deal with you. But right there, Peter, Paul is repeating what Peter says here. We're to have the right pathos, the right attitude of honor and respect towards our supervisors and we're to serve them as if I was serving Christ himself. How do people in your workplace view your attitude towards your workplace? That has a direct effect, whether you want to admit it today or not, has a direct effect on the persuasiveness of your gospel message when shared with them. So this is how we build up a persuasive appeal to the gospel by our lives. This is how we put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is how we do good and draw attention to our redemption and to our Redeemer. It is by being subject and by honoring everyone. And nearly all of us can begin tomorrow morning. Who are you neglecting to show honor towards in your government? Do you have an uncompromised message? Do you have an uncompromised emotion? Do you have an uncompromised lifestyle? How are you neglecting to show honor towards your workplace? What's coming out of your mouth? Do you have an uncompromised message? Do you have an uncompromised emotion? Do you have an uncompromised lifestyle? Believers, we need to shine out the light of Christ this week. Just as he submitted himself to the role of a servant, as we saw in Philippians, and there was treated unjustly for the glory of God, so we also must show proper submission and show honor to everyone, especially our supervisors, as they are our supervisors. It just may be that through our Christ-like submission and respect, we will put to silence our critics, and we will win some to Christ. But it begins here. This is our responsibility underlining the gospel, not undermining it. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Honor everyone. Why? Because we'll see the results of doing so beginning next week. For now, this is the word of God from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience in the fervent care and oversight of one another until our Lord and Master returns. To that end, as the men come forward for communion this morning, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for how it cuts, exposes our thoughts and intentions. And Father, I thank you for how your priorities adjust our priorities. So Father, help us to be on mission this week. Help our mission to be to share the gospel with those around us who are lost. 
And in that mission, may we be very careful in how we conduct ourselves. May we show the subjection that Christ Himself showed when He was on earth. May we show the honor and respect that Jesus Christ exhibited while here. And come what may, from that, may we follow His example and be used by You to silence the critics, to do what is good, to honor Jesus, and to bring about the salvation of the lost. Give us grace towards this end, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.